2: This is
0: the Tom Hartman
2: Program. And greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. We have a lot coming up on the program today. We're going to be discussing with Professor Richard Wolf the Republican Party's extraordinarily dark plot to win elections and how it interacts with economics. Oh, and I've got a rather extensive rant for you in a few minutes about Liz Cheney and the Republican Party and is it even worth saving and we'll get into that in a few minutes but right now Charles Sowers is is on the line with us a libertarian economist and president of the market institute marketinstitute.org is the website he's also the author of a book It's so, you know, worthy of your consideration. It's it's titled Profit Motive, What Drives the Things We Do. Marketinstitute.org is the website. Charles Sauer, S-A-U-E-R, is his Twitter handle. Charles, welcome back. So my question to you as a libertarian who doesn't uh, generally believe in the government spending money on anything other than, you know, police and courts and armies is, How does the free market supply infrastructure? Obviously, I put this in the context of, you know, Joe Biden's proposing a couple of trillion dollars to rebuild America. How does your mythical free market do this?
3: Well, I think first off, we need to take Joe Biden's plan and kind of divide it out into chunks, right? I think only about 6% of the plan deals with what we would traditionally call infrastructure, as in uh, roads and highways and maybe even the electrical grid you know, water and that sort of thing. So if we're talking about that, I might actually have a surprising answer for you today. And I hosted an event what would be about 15 years ago now called the right size of government. And in that event, we had people that proposed anywhere from 5% of GDP to 30% of GDP as being the right size of government. But there was a large agreement around that 18 to 20% rate for being the right size of government for our GDP. And one Which of those is more people- or less that where we are right now. Was, we so, have 15 is, to 20%, and we're at about 20% right now, aren't we? Yeah, we're, we're right around that mark. I mean, if you looked, I mean, you know, there was all sorts of academics that agreed in kind of the area that we're at right now. But one of the guys that kind of interested me was uh, Bill Niskanen, who at the time was one of the heads of the Cato Institute. And when it came to infrastructure, he used the Gini coefficient, which is a economic statistic that we use to look at inequalities. And he said that if we look at building roads and use the Gini coefficient, that the government is the one that should build roads and basic infrastructure. So as far as Biden's plan is concerned on building roads and basic infrastructure, I would say that Bill Niskanen is one of the top libertarians. He thinks that the government is the right way to go with that. I'm going to side with Bill Niskannon. If we look at the rest of Biden's plan, I don't believe that that should actually be called infrastructure and should go into a different bill.
2: Oh, interesting. It, it is not the response that I expected. So you would support raising taxes on people who make over $400,000 a year and big corporations, or at least raising them back to where they were before Donald Trump came into office to generate a couple of trillion dollars that could be used to I'm assuming that you know being a 21st century guy that you would include broadband in that definition of infrastructure I mean it's the information highway right it's uh, but basically you're in favor of doing this do I have that right Charles?
3: I don't agree with the way that Biden is setting up the taxes, and I actually don't agree with the broadband section. I think that we have a lot of history in our country of running some of these services to people where it's not economically beneficial for us to run these services and for us having us as a country and the people in those areas having problems. Look, LBJ did it when he ran electricity to some places and kept people in uh, places in Texas where they couldn't make money. But No, uh, FDR, FDR sorry, did the LBJ Rural Electrification
2: Administration, and then I believe it was Eisenhower, it might have been Truman, did the uh, Rural Telephony Administration, the REA and the RTA, and the whole point of both of them was that the so-called free market was not delivering electricity to people in rural areas because it was more expensive to get it out to them, and so the government stepped in to do that. Are you saying that we should just go back to abandoning people who live in rural areas?
3: I'm saying that by delivering them electricity, we kept people on farms that weren't producing instead of where they would have seen an incentive to move to a city and be productive. I think we drove a lot of people into poverty through that plan and the statistics. By letting them to keep go their with family me on farms. that one. Huh. Okay. No, they ended up uh, most of them ended up losing their family farms because the farmland that they were on was untenable.
2: Got it. So back to this uh, Biden expanded definition of infrastructure. You know, we we started with broadband there. How is an educated populace not an intellectual infrastructure? We see, you know, the United States is now slipping behind other countries in terms of original patents. It is our intellectual infrastructure, or certainly it was our intellectual infrastructure from roughly the 1920s, when free public school became common all across the United States. It really only started in the 1890s. And so from the 1920s until the 1980s, when we had the very best public schools in the world, we also led the world in science and technology and innovation, all those other things. How could you not consider that? I mean, it's openly clearly considered infrastructure, by every other developed country in the world, this intellectual infrastructure, the, the right to have an education, including a college education. Why would you not consider that infrastructure?
3: Well, first off, President Biden, and even you, I believe last week, supported giving our intellectual property away to other countries. So the left definitely uh, no, isn't not, on board not, with neither that. Neither of those statements His, are true, Charles. Well, you supported giving our intellectual property for the vaccines away to other countries. No, and that's, that's is, not true. by the, your own the, definition, the trips, giving away our infrastructure.
2: The, the WTO TRIPS waiver pays, in this case, let's say it was AstraZeneca, that is going to be manufactured on a generic basis, say in India, for example. That company that manufactures it in India has to pay 7% of their revenue back to AstraZeneca, plus a percentage that covers some profits.
3: So um, they're gonna have a reduced profit, but
2: it's not a giveaway. You did
3: make that, first off, I will lay the groundwork. You've never led me astray when you've laid the groundwork for an argument. And that was a part of your groundwork last week. I went along with it. When we got off the call, I tried to research it. That 7% is written down nowhere. This TRIPS waiver currently isn't written anywhere. I haven't been able to find that 7%, but even at 7%, Go to TradeWatch.org,
2: Charles. You'll find it. All right. I'll look it up. But we're pretty much out of time. Last 10 seconds, why we shouldn't
3: pay for college? Look, college is good. It can be privately funded.
2: Okay. All righty. Charles Sauer, libertarian economist, president of the Market Institute, marketinstitute.org. His his book, Profit Motive, What Drives the Things We Do, you can tweet him at Charles Sauer. Charles, thanks for dropping by. It's always good talking with you.
3: Thank you.
2: This is the Tom Hartman Program. We'll be back with more of the news of the day and your calls in just a moment. Pipeline hack, a warning shot for electrical grid and other infrastructure. Uh, speaking of infrastructure, I mean, the, the, when you look at this Russian criminal group, or the, at least this criminal group that is tolerated by Russia, it's called DarkSide. This longtime executive at ExxonMobil, uh, his name is Stephen Arbogast, he said this should serve as a warning shot for all our vital infrastructure, um, which is another issue that, uh, frankly, I probably should have gotten into with Charles to see what, you know his thoughts on this. Should, when we have infrastructure that is privately owned, the Colonial Pipeline is privately owned, is it the job of the federal government to protect it? Should your and my tax dollars be paying for it? Or should we nationalize it and say this is our pipeline now and we'll protect it? Or should we provide protection for the pipeline and charge Colonial for it? Or whatever the company or you know, the holding company is that ultimately owns the Colonial pipeline. Duke Energy, I guess, is one of the, one of these big companies. And they're saying that they're aware of the potential threat and trying to build technological layers and trying to get ready for all this kind of stuff. But what do we do? Yeah, I get it. You know, infrastructure is interesting. I'm not sure it's the world's sexiest topic. In my next rant in just a moment and uh, I would love to hear your thoughts on this as well, as well as any, you know, thoughts, arguments, suggestions particularly, you know, from the conservatives out there who might want to argue with me on infrastructure. I think that the Biden plan is actually quite whole. But uh, what I want to get into in just a few minutes is this idea that Liz Cheney is trying to save the Republican Party. And I'm going to try to build a case here in a moment that the Republican Party is not worth saving. And the reason it's not worth saving is because it has been part of the international criminal cartel, essentially, that ronald reagan inserted us into that this was you know very much what reagan was all about was basically turning america over to the international criminal class from the tax cheats to the big oil companies to the weapons manufacturers and sellers to the whole black market folks that there literally is an international criminal class and that the Republican Party threw in with them in the 1980s and Donald Trump then tried to make it official you know say oh yeah we're we're just the same as Russia for example you know when somebody one of the press conferences well you know Russia kills journalists and Trump's response was well you know America does some pretty bad stuff too well we have done some pretty bad stuff but are we Russia no i don't think so and that's not to pick on Russia i mean you know there's no shortage of countries that I don't think have ever really tried to hold themselves to the standards that America at least holds up for herself, for ourselves. So we'll get into that in just a minute. As promised, uh, I want to get into, you know, my rant, which is published over at HartmanReport.com. And it's titled, Is the International Criminal Class GOP Worth Saving? And, you know, my point is that instead of trying to clean up their act, the Republican Party seems more and more committed to getting in bed with criminals. I mean, Liz Cheney is out there saying, oh, you know, we need to save the Republican Party. Really? I mean... And to any Republicans listening right now, and I know you're out there, you know, if, if, if you want to try and set me straight on this, please, I'm ready to hear your argument. But for 40 years, from where I'm sitting, it looks to me like the Republican Party has been a peripheral part of the international criminal class, and Donald Trump pushed it fully into the international criminal class and in fact tried to take our entire country there with him and i mean this isn't the first time this has happened you know we broke from the international criminal class which was the british east india company in 1776 that's that's how we started was getting you know disconnecting ourselves from the international criminal class then they got in bed with the southern, you know, with the, the, the big plantation owners in the Confederacy in that era from 1820 to 1860. And, you know, half this country was in bed with the international criminal class again with the slave trade, the cotton trade, and everything else. That got busted up by the Civil War. Then these guys, these international criminals, these at least the ones based in the United States, but this was after they had thrown in with Hitler... With the America First movement and Charlie Lindbergh. And then they tried to hire Smedley Butler to kidnap or assassinate Franklin Roosevelt. And we fought that back. And then came Reagan. And I mean, you know, you look at what Reagan did, and it is just mind-boggling, right? I've got a list here in the article, and and there's a link out to every single one of them. He traded American weaponry for hostages in order to win an, an election. He illegally armed murderous thugs and overthrew governments while smuggling cocaine into the United States. He opened up the banking laws to criminal behavior so widely that the entire savings and loan industry collapsed and we had to spend $7 trillion bailing out those bankers. Your money and mine. He explicitly and overtly supported the brutal and racist apartheid and internationally recognized criminal government of South Africa. He stole money from the EPA Superfund and funneled it into Republican election campaigns. He surveilled, harassed, and intimidated journalists. He rigged HUD grants housing grants, and then took the money from that and gave it to Republican donors. He helped Osama bin Laden start what we call al-Qaeda these days. He eliminated 40,000 beds for mental patients in America, you know, leading to this epidemic of homelessness, you know, not to mention his getting into bed with tax cheats. I mean, I probably should have started with that because that's probably the biggest part of the international criminal conspiracy is to, you know, not pay taxes anywhere. Uh, Janet Yellen came out last week and said that the international criminal class in the United States owes this government $7 trillion in unpaid taxes. I mean, you know, when Nixon was caught lying about Watergate and taking bribes from Jimmy Hoffa and the Milk Lobby and McDonald's, Americans were shocked. But keep in mind, it was Republicans. It was Barry Goldwater who walked over to the White House and said, you got to go, Dick. That's not the Republican Party anymore. That's not the Republican Party since Reagan. Instead, you know what we have is Donald Trump, you know, a real estate fraudster and serial criminal himself, who put Steve Mnuchin, the foreclosure king, the guy that Kamala Harris could have put in prison, put him in charge of all of the federal money as Secretary of the Treasury. He put the head of Exxon Mobil, the company that since the 1980s has been lying to us about climate change in charge of our State Department as our Secretary of State. He put a billionaire that Forbes magazine, for God's sake, called a grifter. Wilbur Ross put him in charge of the Commerce Department. He had Elaine Chow as transportation secretary, Mitch McConnell's wife, who was you know passing out money to her own family and friends, or you know, rigging systems and deals that would benefit tremendously benefit her own family and friends. I mean and then trump is like oh yeah and we're just the same as all these other kind that's what he wanted that's where he wanted to go so i guess you know my question is the republican party worth saving and my answer is frankly i don't think so although i'm not sure what you replace it with i mean there's talk about a third party you know a new republican party Are they going to be another billionaire-run party? Is that the deal? You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. I mean, if the Republican Party or if this new party, you know, without Trump, comes along, how does it structure itself? What does it do? What What does it sell? Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service... Our book today for the tom hartman book club is unmaking the presidency donald trump's war on the world's most powerful office by susan Hennessy and benjamin witz and this is from the introduction page five they've described how all the former presidents with the exception of herbert walker bush who was ill were there for trump's inauguration as well as secretary clinton and her husband bill clinton and then he continues the clock mounted down to the key moment shortly before noon when donald trump stood before chief justice john roberts trump's wife melania held two bibles on which he placed his left hand one was from trump's childhood the other was the bible that abraham lincoln used to take his oath of office in 1861. and then trump raised his right hand and repeating after roberts swore the presidential oath of office a momentary silence hung in the air no lightning bolt struck ground did not open the passage of power in the United States had taken place as quietly as ever. Yet in that moment, an earthquake of sorts did occur, because although the United States may have had more tragically misguided executives at its helm, never before had it had as president a man more obviously misplaced in the office. The mismatch reverberated across the country with the very words of the oath itself. While for millions of Trump supporters, the moment it was one sort of triumph. For a great many others, a sense of dread pervaded the air that morning. This dread had little to do with politics or policy programs. It was not the normal apprehension one might have at the swearing in of a politician one opposes. Even many people who had cast their ballots for Trump shared in a collective recognition that the man swearing this oath was simply not the sort of man who was supposed to be President of the United States. That mismatch and the challenge it poses to the office Trump assumed that day are the subjects of this book. This mismatch is fundamentally a question of character at its core to a far greater degree than americans commonly imagine the office of the presidency depends on a measure of civic virtue we don't mean civic virtue in the loftier nostalgic sense of expecting our elected leaders to be scholars statesmen who can theorize a system of government as easily as they can lead one nor do we mean virtue in the sense of personal righteousness and purity americans have long since given up the expectation that our country's leaders will be on a par with its founders, even as the founder's own luster has tarnished over time. The presidency has had its share of rogues and villains and incompetence. That said, a certain common understanding of the presidency has prevailed over more than two centuries. And this understanding, call it the traditional presidency, carries with it certain expectations. It does not expect presidents to be paragons of virtue, but it does expect them to espouse shared values and to at least pose as role models. It expects presidents to speak of service and putting others before self. It expects presidents to, at a minimum, pay lip service to following the law and embracing an ethos of civic duty. And it pervasively depends on presidents thinking that they enforce and comply with rules in good faith. By contrast, it was resoundingly clear on January 20th, 2017 that Donald Trump's life and candidacy were an ongoing rejection of civic virtue, even if we define the term loosely. From the earliest days of his campaign, he declared war on the traditional presidency's expectations of behavior. He was flagrant in his personal immorality, boasting of marital infidelity, and belittling political opponents with lewd insults. He had constructed his entire professional identity around gold-plated excess and luxury and the branding of self. As a candidate, he remained unabashed in his greed and personal ambition. Even his namesake charitable foundation was revealed to be merely a shell for self-dealing. He bragged that finding ways to avoid paying taxes made him smart. The overriding message of Trump's life and of his campaign was that kindness is weakness, manners are for wimps, and the public interest is for suckers. He never spoke of the presidential office other than as an extension of himself. In America in 2016, that turned out to be a winning message. The reasons why have been treated in depth elsewhere it was a function of political polarization domestically, of myriad forces driving the appeal of authoritarian populace globally, and of the dramatic loss of confidence in political elites, and of a media ecosystem in which voters can increasingly choose their own realities. It was a function, no doubt, of the resurgence of race as a salient political identity for many white voters and critically for present purposes, it was a function of political parties' loss of control over their own nominating processes. We'll leave to others the question of how to assess Trump's appeal and the social conditions that allow him to flourish. The relevant fact for now is that the appeal was broad enough for Trump to win 306 electoral votes and thus acquire the privilege of taking the oath of office that day. And so a man who quite proudly rejected personal and public virtue now occupied an office designed by people who valued nothing higher. George Washington had said that, quote, "...virtual or morality is a necessary spring of popular government." John Adams had insisted the public virtue, quote, "...the only foundation of republics could not exist in a nation without private virtue." Alexander Hamilton had written that virtue and honor were the foundation of confidence that underpinned the institution of delegated power. The contemporary Anglo-Irish philosopher Edmund Burke had famously declared that, quote, society cannot exist unless a controlling power upon will and appetite be placed somewhere. On Making the Presidency by Hennessy and Witts. And welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. Just- Two things I wanted to just, as punctuation marks to uh, my rant, and then I'll pick up your phone calls here in just a moment. The first is that Joe Biden is saying, basically, you know, I mean, his proposals, the American Jobs Plan, the American Families Plan, his infrastructure proposals, the the hard infrastructure and the soft infrastructure, I think is how they're referring to it in the administration, the roads and bridges and the human infrastructure, shall we say, it's going to cost about $4 trillion dollars and that's going to require uh, undoing some of the Trump tax cuts and maybe even undoing some of the Bush tax cuts. And that apparently has some democrats a little nervous. So I just wanted to, you know, toss this out that, you know, if you're making phone calls and you want to assure your democratic senators, these are all democrats that raising taxes on people who make over $400,000. You know, if you're in that category, if you make over four hundred dollars and you're fine with paying a little more in tax so that we can have a decent country, uh, give them a call. I mean, if you're opposed, give them a call. It's up to you. You can say anything you want. And certainly if you make under $400,000, it's just pure benefit to you. But this is from a, a piece by Kerry Elveld. Over at uh, the Daily Coase, it's titled, Biden's very popular proposals are meeting resistance as some Democrats fret over raising taxes. And Kerry notes, uh, overhauling taxation of multinational corporations is getting the silent treatment from uh, Senate Finance uh, Committee Chairman Ron Wyden of uh, Oregon, Senate Banking Committee Chairman Sherrod Brown of Ohio. They're both very, very solid progressives. And Senator Mark Warner of Virginia. Biden's proposal to roughly double the amount of capital gains. Taxes paid by investors who earn more than a million dollars a year is getting some resistance from uh, Senator Warner and Senator Bob Menendez of New Jersey. Uh, this is a change, by the way, that it would only affect three-tenths of one percent of taxpayers. Several House Democrats have also indicated they wouldn't support Biden's proposals unless they also repeal a cap put in place by the GOP tax law. These are the so-called SALT taxes. I actually think that uh, repealing, I I realize that many of my progressive colleagues say, hey, you know, uh, limiting the amount of state and local taxes, that's what SALT stands for, state and local taxes, S-A-L-T, limiting the amount of state and local taxes that you can deduct from your federal taxes to 10 grand, which was what Trump put into place, means that rich people are going to get a tax break if you do away with that you know, and, and allow people to deduct all of the taxes that they pay to the state from their federal taxes. But... If you don't do that, you have double taxation, number one, which is just like wrong. And number two, there are a lot of states where property values are high and the principal store of wealth that middle class people have is their home. And they're paying fairly high property taxes, plus they're paying high state income taxes. California, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, Oregon even, or at least the Portland part of Oregon to that extent. So I think that blowing up the SALT tax thing, uh, going back to the way it was before Trump messed with it, actually is what I would advocate. But, you know, if you disagree with me, let me know. Anyhow, let's pick up some of your phone calls here. Mark in Long Beach, California. Hey, Mark, what's up?
1: Well, yesterday you were trying to figure out a name for the new Republican Party. And um, I remember heard on Mitch Jesper's show on KPFA, a guy kind of blurted out, the Republican Confederacy. And that term stood out in in my mind like a bright star.
2: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. They're embracing the values of the Confederacy, hierarchy, patriarchy, slavery, or at the very least segregation in the modern form. Although I think you could say something close to slavery, slave wages, shall we say, not to diminish the awfulness of slavery, obviously and treason, (laughs) you know, hatred of their own government. So, yeah, I think you're onto something, Mark. That was a good one. Thank you. Todd in Summit, Mississippi. Hey, Todd, what's on your mind?
1: Yes, I've been listening to you, and I happen to agree with you about the Republican Party should not be saved. In all honesty, they have, since the 1980s, been moving to what I would call a corporate communistic model for your die-hard Republicans, your moderate Republicans, but now we are seeing this move into more of a fascist-type party. And once you reach Mm -hmm. that point, there is no way that it can be saved. You know, the Chinese have been watching this, and they have actually been modeling what corporations in the United States have been doing since the 1980s. And they've basically refined it and made it work for them. Uh, You know, corporations have basically, they watch their employees now, they put software on their computers so they see everything that they do, and the Chinese are basically doing the same thing. And the Republicans, anytime anything is done for the American worker or for the benefit of the people... They fight it and fight it and fight it. And the only reason for this is not just for the wealthy, but it's also to set up this symbiotic-type plutocracy that honestly mirrors more of a communist-type movement than anything else. And the rest are just fascists.
2: Yeah. By, and by communist, you mean the actual communist countries like the old Soviet Union and, and current communist China, where basically the government is totalitarian. That's what you're talking Absolutely. about. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I get it. I get it. I think you may be right. And- the extent to, America, to which American companies are moving in that direction is also pretty shocking. The book that I just sent off to my publisher's editor, to BK's editor, it's the first draft. I'll get it back in about three weeks, and then I'll have a month to you know fine-tune it and then send it off again. Um, but it's the book that I've been working on for the last six months. It's called The Hidden History of Big Brother in America. And and there's several chapters in there about how corporations are like hyper monitoring us, how they're how they're hyper monitoring their employees, how you know, the loss of privacy, the loss of, uh, you, know, uh, you know, personal power, um, all of these things. So to your point, uh, and, the, and the Republicans are just like totally in with all of that. So to your point, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Thank you for that. Joanne in Van Nuys, California. Hey, Joanne, what's up?
4: Um, well, I wanted to. Ma- I'm glad you brought up the drugs because if you remember during the Bush Reagan era, remember the Iran Contra, and mm-hmm. that was. That was actually one of the largest international drug cartels was being run, and they were bringing those drugs in and selling them in Southern California and then spreading them across the uh, country. That's That's when crack cocaine came in. And these people, the, the, the same people, the Bushes and company, they have made fortunes on drugs and on the pain and suffering of the people they sell and get addicted. And they've been doing it since... Since that's their original fortunes with for the clipper ships and and uh, and uh, the opium wars, and they're still doing it. And I'm glad you brought it up. And don't forget, when William Casey was uh, arranging this deal, he was going over, you know, and making arrangements with Iran, uh, Iran to pull off that first October surprise or second one. He ended up. He was testifying in December. I can't remember the actual year but it was like 1989 and he actually said this goes right to the top meaning the Oval Office and the next he he was visited by a uh, CIA doctor and suddenly that part of his brain uh, uh, that allows you to talk and articulate he was no longer able to speak so we never talked or continued his testimony
2: yeah I know the story I know the story. I've never been able to track that, you know, I I know that, you know, uh, the Republicans knew that cocaine was coming into this country kind of in in exchange for those weapons. I've never been able to track the money, but I I always figured that from the point of view of Reagan and Bush, because that's when it was happening, that they were just delighted to see all that cocaine just devastating mostly black communities. Um, Joanne, I'm I'm sorry, I'm out of time. We'll continue. Visit for audio and video archives. If you can, if, Joanne, if you have a link to uh, to the money trail on the cocaine that was brought into the United States, post it on Twitter. I'd love to see it. Eric in Erie, Pennsylvania, you're on the air. Eric, what's up?
0: Hey, Tom, I'm uh, calling on your rant, and I'm inclined to agree with you. I don't think it's eligible, and I'm a guy that you know. So, what is, replaces um, it? Well, they're going to have to take the of the, you know, original Republican idea If there's want for it, and surely there will be. That's a lot of voters. But my argument's from the opposite direction. You know, yours is kind of top-down on the cartels and the corporatocracy, and I agree with you completely. But I think from the bottom up, we've now seen this coalescing of a really kind of toxic, you know, cabal of anti-vax weirdos, white supremacy weirdos, um, you know, strange bedfellows, all finding unity under this this ugliness of the modern GOP, and we need to break them up as a voting block because to, together they're probably the single most dangerous threat to American democracy. So it's a well, lot of numbers. And, yeah, of and
2: that's something—I'm sorry, go ahead.
0: It's, just, it's a lot of people that could, could vote in candidates and policies that in a single election cycle, we could see, you know, the, the power of our culture, of our nation shift in a single election.
2: Yeah, and, and we have, by the way. Yeah. Um, and, well, yes. I mean, you know, that's what we saw in 2016, that's what we saw in 2020. Yeah, I get your point. In fact, uh, you're making me think that maybe I should go back and edit my op-ed today. And one of the cool things about having them online is that I can just go in and tweak them as the day goes on. Um, to include the fact that, uh, you know, they've, they've basically, they've, uh, the, the Republican Party has not only brought in the international criminal class and the domestic criminal class, but they've also brought in the racists. They've also brought yeah, in the misogynists. They've—I mean—they've—they've I mean, they've, they've brought in a bunch of deplorables, right? <laughs> it's,
1: it's like
0: yeah, Hillary was years. right, and and this yeah. is a group, and it's like the question we ask about Republican voters every cycle: them voting against their own economic self-interest. They're gullible enough to hang their hat on, hey, I'm part of you know the supreme class, the white class, the chosen people in America, so at least I have that, even though you know, my home is, you know, beyond my affordability, my my children can't get education, I can't get health care, yada, yada, but I'm on the good side. It's enough for them to identify, because it really is about identity politics, the thing they accuse so much in the direction of the left. They're so guilty of themselves.
2: Yeah, it's well, it's exactly, it's what LBJ said, you know, if, uh, you know, uh, give them give white guys uh, black people to look down on, and they'll let you pick pick their pockets. I you know I don't have the exact That's it. Uh, exact and that, quote that's in, what in we memory, have. But. Yeah, yeah. In fact, he said, uh, "Hell, they'll turn their pockets inside out for you." <laughs> you know, if you Yeah, if you, if you offer. Can. they'll
5: offer.
0: They'll look at Trump. They'll throw their money at you.
2: Yeah, yeah. Actually, Trump has made hundreds of millions of dollars off his suckers. Yeah. You know, off the suckers who are following him.
0: Historically, a wealthy big city coastal elite Trump type, they would never spit in his direction. But now he's their representative.
2: Yeah, yeah, it's bizarre. Thank you, Eric. Good comments, all. I often thought that if the Republican Party went away, that maybe the Democratic Party, parts of the Democratic Party, would become the new Republican Party. Tom Hartman here with you. So if the Republican Party was to go away tomorrow morning or just, you know, lose so much power in the 2022 elections, God willing, right, that there's a huge space for another political party to step into the spot, you know, is it going to be the Libertarian Party? Is it going to be Charles Sowers' group? Is it going to be some new crazed right wing, you know, America First Party? Is it going to be Julio Rivera's group? Not to call him crazed, but, well, he might call himself crazed, who knows. Or would it be the so-called moderates in the Democratic Party splitting off and saying, okay, we'll become, you know, because they're basically where the Republicans were prior to Reagan. Right? You know, slow and steady and keep taxes low and keep, you know, business friendly, but don't be nuts. How does that work? I, you know, I, I, could, I could build a case for any one of those things. I think it's just fascinating. Anyway, Joe in Elyria, Ohio. Hey, Joe, what's up? Hey, Tom. Love what you're doing
6: always. And today, the word that stuck out to me most—you uh, keep talking about this international criminal class—and I yes. just kind of wonder when Republicans are going to realize that you know this international criminal class is the globalists that they have been told to worry about for so long, and that you know they have put those people into power. And, you know, talking about, you know, what is the Democratic Party, what is the Republican Party going to look like in the future here? Um, you know, they always say that you don't want to trade liberty for security. But will Republicans, you know, how bad does it have to get for Republicans to see that, you know, something like health care for all is not trading liberty, but trading risk and uh you know, gaining liberty right. and the security good, of good being point, able to Joe. pay for your health care and have a life.
2: Well, what they've been, what they've been told to be afraid of over the years, re- Republicans, or we should say conservatives, because, you know, this was once in the Democratic Party as well. So what conservatives have, have been, you know, telling uh, Americans to freak out about and worry about over the years has basically been communism. You know, there's, there's, there's God forbid, you know, communism and what, what is communism from each according to his ability, to each according to his needs. So everybody gets health care and everybody gets, you know. There's been that rant. And then there's also, of course, the anti-Semitic rant, right? You know, the international Jewish conspiracy kind of thing. Those have been the two, um, you know, look out, be afraid, be afraids that are constantly coming out of the right wing. Now they've added to this black people, by the way, Joe. I just retweeted this just a few minutes ago. In fact, let me uh, go to my profile here and share this with you. Because I think it's apropos of this. This was from uh, CPAC. Right? This is uh, Richard Grinnell, one of the um, CPAC guys. He says, Biden is too weak to stop the progressive left from taking over. Kamala doesn't understand what's going on. We have a shadow president in Susan Rice and no one's paying attention. So they were saying that Kamala Harris was the shadow president, a black woman. Now they're saying Susan Rice is the shadow president, a black woman. One of the right-wing reporters asked Jen Psaki if this was the third term of the Obama administration, our first black president. All of these white conservatives are just continuously freaking out that oh my god, it, you know it's possible a black person's in charge. So now they've even gone beyond you know it's the communists or it's the Jew. Now it's the black people of being in power. Right. Before it was, look out, they're going to, you know, mug you or make off with your daughter or something. And now it's, oh, my God, they've got power. It's like all the Republicans have to sell basically is hate and fear. It just, you know, and and they just keep they keep going back to this old tune. And I get that it sells to some people. I'm sorry,
6: Joe, go ahead. The one argument that I would have to say to that is that I come from Ohio which has always been somewhat considered a conservative state. But back in the 1800s, conservatism at that time meant that, you know, you kept your banks in line so that they didn't go bankrupt. And that is what eventually right. gave Ohio the power to be able to take on Rockefeller and to control some of the...
2: Ohio um, was the first to state to operate. pass antitrust legislation. The Sherman Antitrust Act. Senator Sherman was from Ohio. and um, That's all I'm
6: saying is that, you know, there is a limit to the amount of liberty that we want to pass along to anyone on a personal basis, but once again, you know that that whiteness that people seem to cling to, that makes them feel safe, that makes them vote for Republicans. people need to realise that that is based on money, and if you don't have a billion dollars or more, you're not really white in the eyes of the people who are. Pushing our politics
2: and pushing poorest and most in need among us to vote against yeah. our, our own needs. Yeah, I'm not sure. Not really. White would be exactly the phrase, but not certainly not worthy. But this is the freakout that they're that the conservatives and the Republicans are pitching. Is oh my God, somebody other than a white man is in charge. We should all freak out. Joe, thank you for the call. We'll continue the conversation. Actually, Richard Wolf is going to be with us on the other side of this break, and then we'll continue the conversation.
4: more confident, capable surgeons, and even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverse impact.
0: As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies.
2: And welcome to Tom Hartman University Book Club. And today we're reading from Unequal Protection, How Corporations Became People and How You Can Fight Back. This is Chapter 11. It's titled Corporate Control of Politics, page 170. During the bruising primary election season of 2008, a right-wing group put together a 90-minute hit job on Hillary Clinton and wanted to run it on TV stations in strategic states. Federal Election Commission ruled that the advertisements for the documentary were actually campaign ads and thus fell under the restrictions on campaign spending of the McCain-Feingold Act and thus stopped them from airing. Corporate contributions to campaigns have been repeatedly banned and in various ways since 1907 when Republican President Teddy Roosevelt pushed through the Tillman Act. Citizens United, the right-wing group, sued to the Supreme Court with the right-wing hitman and former Reagan Solicitor General Ted Olson the man who argued bush's side of bush v gore as their lead lawyer this new case citizens united versus federal election commission presented the best opportunity for the roberts court to use its five vote majority to completely rewrite the face of american politics rolling us back to the pre nineteen oh seven era of the robber barons and if there was one man to do it it was john roberts although he was handsome with a nice smile and photogenic young children Roberts was no friend to average working Americans. If anything, he was the most radical judicial activist appointed to the court in more than a century. He'd worked most of his life in the interest of the rich and powerful and was chomping at the bit for a chance to turn more of America over to his friends. As Jeffrey Tubin wrote in the New Yorker, quote, "In every major case since he became the nation's 17th chief justice, Roberts has sided with the prosecution over the defendant." the state over the condemned, the executive branch over the legislative, and the corporate defendant over the individual plaintiff. Even more than Scalia, who has embodied judicial conservatism during a generation of service on the Supreme Court, Roberts has served the interests and reflected the values of the contemporary Republican Party. End of quote. And the fastest way the modern Republican Party could recover its power over the next decade was to immediately clear away all impediments to unrestrained corporate participation in electoral politics. If a corporation likes a politician, it can ensure that he is elected every time. If it becomes upset with a politician, it can carpet bomb her district and with a few million dollars worth of ads and politically destroy her. In the Citizens United case, the Roberts Court listened to arguments and took briefs and even discussed it among themselves as if they were going to make a decision but instead of deciding the case on the relatively narrow grounds on which it originally been argued whether a single part of a single piece of legislation in this case mccain feingold was unconstitutional the court asked for it to be reargued in september two thousand nine and asked that the breadth of the arguments be expanded to re-examine the rationales for congress to have any power to regulate so-called free speech by corporations in this, they were going along with a request from Theodore B. Olson, who argued Bush v. Gore, and would not now not just look at this narrow case, but go back nearly 20 years to re-examine, and perhaps overturn their own ruling in the Austin v. Michigan Chamber of Commerce case, where the court held that it was constitutional for Congress to pass limits on corporate political activities, as well as its decision in 2003 to uphold McCain-Feingold as constitutional. The setup for this 2010 decision came in June of 2007 in the Federal Election Commission versus Wisconsin Right to Life case, in which the Robert Courts ruled that the FCC could not prevent Wisconsin Right to Life from running ads just because it was a corporation. The idea of Congress passing laws that limited corporate free speech was clearly horrifying to both Roberts and Scalia. Scalia went after the 1990 Austin v. Michigan Chamber of Commerce case. In which the then Rehnquist Court had ruled that the Michigan Chamber of Commerce was limited in its free speech in a political campaign because it was a corporation. Scalia complained this Austin was the only pre McConnell case that this court had ever permitted the government to restrict political speech based on the corporate identity of the speaker. Austin upheld state restrictions on corporate independent expenditures, and God forbid, the statute had been modeled after the federal statute that BCRA 203 amended. End of quote. The Austin case Scalia concluded with four others nodding was a significant departure from ancient First Amendment principles. In my view, it was wrongly decided. Scalia was quoted at length from opinions in the Gross Gene v. American Press 1936 case. In Scalia's words, quote, holding that corporations are guaranteed the freedom of speech and of press, safeguarded by the due process of law clause of the 14th Amendment. He also quoted the 1986 Pacific Gas and Electric. Company versus Public Utility Commission of California case the identity of the speaker is not decisive in determining whether speech is protected corporations and other associations like individuals contribute to the discussion debate and the dissemination of information and ideas that the first amendment seeks to foster the bottom line for Scalia was quote the principle that such advocacy is at the heart of the first amendment's protection and is indispensable to decision making in a democracy is no less true because the speech comes from a corporation rather than an individual the book unequal protection how corporations became people and how you can fight back i laid out this hypothesis which i think is supported by a substantial amount of evidence that the part of the republican strategy to win elections in 2022 and 2024 is as a three-part piece to it number 1 convince americans not to get vaccinated so that the country doesn't reach herd immunity so joe, joe biden doesn't get the virus under control number 1 number 2 if he can't get the virus under control the economy doesn't get back to full and normal functioning and so the economy is crippled. And then number three, the Republicans run ads saying Joe Biden couldn't put the economy back together. We are the experts at that. Hire us. You know, put us into office and uh, trash Joe Biden. And that this is their this is their new election strategy. So my question is: A, does this make any sense? Uh, but this is kind of a political question for Professor Richard Wolf who will be with us in a moment. I'd really like to put this as an economic question which is, how does this work, this relationship between economics and politics? Are there historical examples of politicians, political parties, or circumstances, you know, shifting politics this sort of way? I guess, you know, what's the economics of this? Professor Richard Wolf is with us, the economist, co-founder of democracyatwork.info, his most recent book, The Sickness Is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself, and you can tweet him at profwolf with two Fs. Uh, Professor Wolf, your thoughts on my hypothesis?
5: Well, I think you're touching something which I, I'm very glad you did, uh, and I should say only in preface... I don't want to depress anyone, but I want to be honest in my answer. I think the Republican Party has made a uh, decision. It's really a bigger decision than having to do with Mr. Trump, although that's what it appears like. It's a decision that assumes something they dare not say. And I think they're right about this. Uh, The assumption is that American capitalism is now an economic system in decline. You know, the first 150 years of our country were a happy ride up. Not that there weren't problems and not that there weren't conflicts. But we had the good fortune to be in a period of a dynamic, rising, ascending capitalist economy and capitalist economic power. Around the 70s and 80s of the last century, we kind of peaked, and we are now in a decline. And the Republican Party has decided that in that decline, they can win political points by blaming the other side for a decline, that is crazy and ridiculous and makes no sense. It's easy to show that the Republican Party has contributed at least as much to that decline as the Democrats. In contrast, the Democrats have a different plan. They want to deny the decline like the Republicans do, but they have admit it like the Republicans do, but in a different form. They're trying to offset it, to correct it to come in there with government programs with uh, a little bit of wealth and income redistribution i don't think it's enough i think their failure to face the decline means they're going to be doing too little and too late and thereby risk playing into the hands of the republicans who as you rightly say are playing the dark game of if, if anything helping the decline so that they can blame it on the other side. What's really needed is a political party or force or movement or whatever you want to call it that is honest about the decline and takes the steps necessary to at the very least slow it down or try to come up with rearrangements of the world economy that will not allow us to spend the next rest of this century in a kind of decline that we've already seen in the last century suffered by Great Britain.
2: Now, I've seen analysis that suggests that the uh, happy ride that you referred to was that there are historical parallels. I mean, ancient historical parallels, the Maury people uh, 6,000 years ago in Australia, or excuse me, in New Zealand, you know, where basically you had the people discovered a, an island that was filled with these 50 pound Moa birds, you know, food on the hoof. And they had just a wonderful, wonderful life for a couple of centuries. And then they ate the last Moa bird and descended into, you know, into, uh, let's say their culture changed dramatically and war became at the center of their culture. And I think the Maury would agree with that analysis. That our 150-year ride was basically that the Native Americans had been good stewards of the natural resources of this continent for the better part of 10,000 years and we came along and basically just, you know, robbed, raped and pillaged. We we just, you know, stripped this continent of its natural resources and we're starting to hit the limits of that of those natural resources, of our ability to exploit those natural resources. And one of the big questions is whether we can reinvent an economy based essentially on recycling, recovering natural resources and reusing them and converting from fossil fuels to solar. What do, you, what do you think about all that?
5: Well, I agree with it, but let me push back just a touch, Tom. I think, that the, I, I think <laughs> that the focus on climate control, on global warming, it's all valid, it's all appropriate, but it contains within it also what psychologists call a displacement. The alarmism, the worry, the anxiety, the doom uh, that is foreseen is a displacement about the feeling, correct, I believe, that our economic system is in a kind of downturn that will replicate what the Maori did in New Zealand, what the ancient Sumerians did in in that part of what we now call Iraq or ancient Mesopotamia. We do, as you say, have repeated examples. What we should learn is that we need to come to terms to work out arrangements with other people and with nature to manage a more fair distribution of the world's benefits of wealth of income and all the rest of it because if we don't then we have in store for us what has been in store for every other society in a comparable uh, period of downturn following an upturn and that's why you know brandishing the war swords against china uh, screaming against other countries with tariffs All of this flailing around of a declining power is very scary because it suggests you haven't learned. And to have our two major political parties competing with each other how to either take advantage of the decline or somehow get away with far less than a declining empire needs if you're not going to go down with it, that's a sad spectacle of political inadequacy.
2: Yeah, and probably will not end well for anybody. Uh, Professor That's Richard right. Wolf, democracyatwork.info, Prof Wolf on the Twitter handle. Professor Wolf, thank you again for dropping by.
5: Good to talk with you, Tom.
2: Back at you, sir. It's always nice having you with us. Thank you. Defending America from the conservative weapons of mass deception.